Just as a, a reminder, we do record the classes, so if, God forbid, you might have to miss a class, you can always listen to the recording, or if you want to listen to any old classes, or older classes, I should say, nothing gets old, right, when it comes to learning, or previous classes, that should be better, previous classes or courses, or our class from every Monday night, you can listen to it on all the different mediums of uh, podcasts, uh, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iPhone, uh, whatever it may be. You can just look it up, look up my name, Mendy Goldberg, and you should, I don't know how many, probably more Mendy Goldbergs, but I don't know how many of them. Oh, you did? Oh, there are several, okay. But I don't know how many are giving, uh, okay, so they, you should see a picture of me, then you'll know it's me. Okay, there you go. But all the recordings are there of the previous classes and of all other classes and things that we have from quite some time. So, welcome to lesson number two. In the previous lesson we started with, whoops, that was too quick. In the previous lesson, last week, we learned about how meditation is a tool that's used to become aware of our conscious, that through meditation we can grow control our mind in using it for positive, which has a positive effect of, uh, effectively on our mood and our feelings, and we learned how positive meditation can enhance our lives in a positive way, and have an impact way beyond ourselves by the very fact, by meditating and thinking about the positive things in our life. And as we discussed, it's just a switch, so to speak. We have the garment of thought that we have the ability to change, turn on, turn off, and change as needed. In this lesson, we're going to go a step further. And in this lesson today, we're going to learn about discovering our spiritual awareness. Dig a little deeper by using meditation to get beyond our conscious thoughts and to see what's deeper than just the surface and trying to get and see beyond the physical that's in front of us. So to be able to get there, we first have to get some definitions clear. And one of the things that are usually thrown around, I know sometimes people come over to me and tell me, you know, Rabbi, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Rabbi, I'm not religious, I'm warm towards religion, I'm not observant in actions, I'm a Jew of the heart. There's sometimes, yeah, I remember there was once this rabbi, he said there's all different kinds of Jews. You have the C Jew, the cardiac Jew, he's a Jew at heart. You have the R Jew, the revolving door Jew, comes in and goes out. Every person has their way of, so to speak, of touching their spirituality. What is spirituality? If you were to define spirituality... How would you define spirituality, and how might spirituality be experienced? Anybody? Connected to something bigger than yourself. Okay. Anybody else? So, it's an interesting thing, not surprisingly, but there is actually no set definition for what spirituality is. In 2005, a survey of researchers found that in all different medical journals, there were over 25 different definitions of what spirituality is. So what is really different spirituality? We live in a world which is dominated by materialism. Dominated by materialism that whatever we see, whatever we need, whatever we focus on, almost 24-7 besides the time that we sleep, is usually focused and centered around our materialistic needs. Whether it's eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, making a living. Why do we go to work? Is to be able to have a roof over our head. So our whole life 
if you want to call it, our bodily senses and everything that we have around us is that of our materialistic needs. How much more so that we live in a society where the society puts much emphasis on what would you call success? How is success defined? A person has a nice house, a cruise, a yacht, uh, a few uh, more than six figures in his bank account, and anything of that nature. Everything is what we define success as today by materialism. Materialism is the deciding factor in many people's lives, and not only in many people's lives, but probably in everybody's life to a certain extent. Living a normal lifestyle, it's only natural that what is our first inkling is to identify with materialism, to identify with what's first when I wake up in the morning, what's the first thing I am thinking of is my materialistic physical needs that I need to. I see the world through a prism of my materialistic physical needs. I look at success or I look at my needs, I look at my desires, I look at my wants, I look at where I live, everything through that materialistic physical nature of reality. If you were to define spirituality, every single person has spirituality something different. Some people will say, I don't believe in spirituality. Spirituality is something I can't feel, touch, see, or hear, or think. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Like the famous story, I'm sure, with a professor, the atheist professor who was the philosophy class, got up in front of his class and he says, you know what, I have proof today that God doesn't exist. Because, do you see God? No. Do you hear God? No. Do you feel God? No. Proof, God doesn't exist. One student from the back of the class steps up and says, Mr. Professor, do you mind if I ask the class a question too? Does anybody see the professor's brains? No. Do we see, hear it? No. Do we feel it? No. Must be the professor that lacks intellect as well. (laughs) But people define what exists by what they can feel, touch, and smell. Whether it's wrong or right, there is such a notion by some people. Then there are some people who do have some spirituality in their life by acknowledging that a spirituality exists, but they're not always in touch with it and on special occasions, whether it may be for some Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, for some it may be Shabbat, for some it may be when a special occasion happens in their life, for some it may be when they go out to nature and they leave everything and they all of a sudden see the greatness of God, so to speak, in nature. Each person has a different time where they, so to speak, feel that connection of some type of level of spirituality. But on a day-to-day basis, we can honestly say that most of us, or many of us, don't always have that intrinsic feeling of spirituality within our, as we have with our material needs. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Bardichev once said, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Bardichev was a student of the Magad of Mizrich, a very well-known Hasidic scholar, who was known as the, so to speak, the defense attorney for the Jewish people. And he once said this thing to God, and he said, Almighty God, what's the big deal that you got us that we're not doing the right thing? You put all the materialistic things in front of us and all the spiritual things in the book. Put it the other way around and see if we still behave that way. You know, but at the end of the day, what do we have in front of us? What are we occupied most of the time with as materialistic things? So it's no secret that we're not in touch with our spiritual side of things because what is our preoccupation is our materialistic. So the question then is, is it at all possible then for us to really send something that's beyond the material? If we're so preoccupied with materialism and we're so preoccupied with physical needs, is it really possible that we can go beyond those physical needs? 
and develop a certain sensitivity to spirituality. What even is spirituality that we want to develop a sensitivity to? So what we're going to talk about today in the next hour is to explore, A, the nature of spirituality and discovering the inner spiritual seeker within ourselves and developing a new sense of how we can really experience spirituality. So how do we do that? The quest for spirituality starts at home, meaning to appreciate spirituality in the world around us, the first step we need to do is to identify spirituality where it is. And therefore, we have to start with ourselves, meaning we have to start understanding of who we are as people. What defines you as an individual? What, ama- what makes you as a character? And therefore, as we started today's class, we started off with the assumption that what is the most important thing? Material beings, material world. And spirituality is something distant, something that's far beyond our reach because we're so preoccupied with the material world. But the question is, is that truly so? And let's find out. But the first way to do that is to discover who we really are. How well do we know ourselves? In how many ways can you describe yourself? Many people have many things. How, how would you describe yourself? Huh? I don't know. You don't know? Okay, that's a, first, that's a good start. <laughs> Most people will... Okay, Most people describe themselves by the, less, by the more obvious descriptions. Technical details, either by their occupation, by the things they love, they're introvert and extrovert, they're loud, they're quiet, they're party, they, do, they want to stay home, they want to sit on a couch potato. We have definitions not by who we are, we define ourselves, so to speak, by things we do. You ask a person, he's a doctor, he's a lawyer, an accountant, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's a house, she's a housewife, whatever it may be. Every person, instead of looking who they are, most cases, when you ask a person, who are you, what are you, they will find some technical term to be able to define themselves. Whether by a technical emotional term, a technical occupation, but what are they really? Are they really something about, do they ever describe themselves of their connection, of who they truly are, of what their psyche is made of? And to get a clearer understanding to finding out who we really are, we need to go back to the beginning. When I say the beginning, I say the really beginning. From the beginning of time, when the first humans were created. In the book of Genesis, in text number one, the Torah tells us about the human creation. Page 40. God formed the human from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into the human nostrils the souls of life. What happens here? Humans are unique from all creations. That we are a composite of a body and a soul. In contrast to every other type of creation or any other thing that God created in the universe, when God created everything else in the universe, it was in one stage. He created the body and soul together. He didn't separate it. However, when God created the human, it was in two separate stages. First, the body was formed, and only then did God exhale from himself into the human, those, the soul. What does that tell you? That the animal 
has a single consciousness, while the human has a dual consciousness. The animal soul and body are one intertwined, one singular motion, one way of thinking, one way singularity type of, of, uh, of connection, one type of consciousness, while the human being is a multi-level of consciousness. The human body, we have nature and we have spiritual. We have the natural and the spiritual, the spiritual and the material. And if we look at it, we have the body and soul spectrum that we have that we can operate on multiple levels. We can operate on a materialistic way, which would be only the body, and we can operate on a soulful way, which is the spiritual way. And often, these two, the body and the soul, either can operate in tandem, but in many cases, or I would say probably most cases, they're in conflict with another. Materialism is selfish. Spirituality is selfless. Materialism is finite. Spirituality is infinite. But we have and we are made up of these two types of consciousness. We are all very familiar with the body consciousness. This is the basic side of the human soul. It feeds our interests. It gets us, uh, it what so to speak keeps us going in day-to-day life. And our bodies are formed from earth and are naturally d- drawn to materialistic desires and pursuits of the physical world. And like all physical things, we are hardwired to perpetuate our own self, our own selfishness. Our body consciousness is something which lives here and now and the gratification needs to be instant. That's the way the materialism is. It doesn't look in the future. It says, what do I want right now? In the microwave age, I want it now, I want it quick, and I want it, I can't wait any longer. Why? Because that's what I want. That's what my materialism wants. It feeds off the body, which is earth, which is instant. But then what is that soul consciousness? What's the opposite side of that spectrum? So last week, we spoke about the soul map, the intellect, the emotions, and we gave the example of the apps on your phone, that the apps are, so to speak, they're the tools to be able to Utilize, but what's really behind the apps is the programming and the algorithm that makes it work. And to the phone itself, there's a lot more than just the apps. It's just a complex piece of hardware, and the apps is what just shows us. The same idea is when we look at the soul, how it operates. It is something beyond those functions. It's beyond the materialism of the way it expresses itself. In our morning prayers, we say in text number two, My God! The soul that you placed within me is pure. You created it, you formed it, you breathed it into me. What is the soul? The soul is the spiritual force of the individual that keeps the person going. The soul is something that wants to live for something greater than just itself. It's not looking just at the here or the present. It has some type of ambition that we can't understand, which is beyond. It drives us to seek meaning, to look for values to not just be satisfied with just the instant gratification. Spirituality is more than just a search for meaning. It's the identity of who the human being is. One way of appreciating what the soul is all about is to understand what the soul is. And in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon gives the metaphor of the soul and he says as follows. Ne'er Hashem nishmas Adam. The human soul is a candle of God. 
How is the soul like a candle? What's the similarity that King Solomon describes that the soul is like a candle? What are the unique characteristics of a candle? And there are many ways that we can parallel and draw the difference between, this, between the concepts of what a candle is and what a soul is. The first, yes? No, the flame on the candle. In fact, actually, it's an interesting thing that you mentioned that, because as we're soon going to see, the candle itself, the wick, so to speak, also has a part of this metaphor. When we talk about body and soul relationship, today we're going to focus on the actual, uh, we'll see the next point, on the actual flame as the soul. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya goes on to say that the wick can be compared to the body. And that's why, as we'll soon see in the metaphor, how it works. The Alter Rebbe says in Tanya as follows in text number four. The nature of a flame is to flicker upward, indicating that the flame intrinsically seeks to part from its wick in order to unite with its source above. Similarly, the human soul naturally desires and yearns to separate itself and escape its body in order to unite with its origin, the source of God, blessed source of all life. You have the body, and this is you're going to your question of the candle itself. The wick, the candle, is the body. The flame is the soul. What does the flame do? It is constantly dancing and jumping, trying to get away from the wick. No matter which way you're going to turn the candle, what's the flame going to do? Always go up. Because where's the source of the flame? The source of fire is above. It's constantly jumping to be able to want to connect to its source above. Just a little side note, a little anecdote on the side. People many times ask, why do Jews, when they learn, automatically have this, what they call in Yiddish, shuckle? They sway. And one of the answers that are given is because our soul, when we're learning or davening, we're connecting with God. And therefore our soul, so to speak, subconsciously, wants the desire as the candle flickers. And it's automatic. You can pick out in a crowd a hundred people and you can see which one is Jewish if the one that's shuckling while he's praying, you know? It's it's amazing thing. You ever see these aerial views of the Kotel and you see everybody just swaying. It's nobody says, okay, one, two, three, go sway. It just it's an automatic thing. It's it's just amazing. And that's compared to the soul. But what is the soul? The soul is this non-material item that's in our body and wants to connect to a truth that's beyond our senses, beyond, the realism, beyond reason, and it's made of something totally different than the body. It doesn't relate to materialism. It doesn't even understand. It doesn't comprehend why we have even a desire for materialism. The soul transcends it all and wants to connect to God, so the soul is continuously trying to escape the body and is wanting to continuously want to go higher and connect to God. And that's the purest level of the soul. Understanding the soul's identity gives us a little bit of a definition of what spirituality is all about. And taking the words you said, connecting to something which is higher. The soul is aware of the divine presence that exists in the divine and supernal worlds. And therefore the soul naturally, the same way the body naturally sees materialism and is inclined to follow it and be able to follow its needs, the soul naturally sees and is aware of the divine presence in this world and wants to be able to connect with it. Should we live in line with our souls? If, hypothetically, if I were to be able to live in line, 
100% with my soul, I would not see the advantage of materialism. I would see the advantage of spirituality. And that would be my, my entire inkling. However, despite the fact that the soul loves to do that, what's the soul? It's trapped in our body. And therefore, the soul is the ultimate source of life for our innermost consciousness. But what's the problem? We live in a body and the material desires are constantly debating and fighting the soul's desires of connecting to something on high. So within our body, we have this constant struggle that we would call Yetzer Hara and Yetzer Tov, which means the evil inclination and godly inclination, or but for the sake of this argument, we'll call it the bodily consciousness or the soul consciousness. And each one is trying to overpower which one is going to have both. And since the physical sensations and the material pursuits of the body don't give room for any spiritual experience of the soul. Why? Because it's so engrossed and it sees the physical in front of it and it's tempted and lives its entire life about materialism. What do we do? How do I identify with that spiritual soul? How do I get the ability to overcome the physical, the subconscious, the, the material, and be able to tap into the spiritual? Not only that, sometimes... Even when we feel spiritual, even when we have the opportunity to experience some type of spirituality, is it enduring? Or is it just some fleeting moment? We have that awe, we have that inspiration, we get all excited, but then it dissipates. How do we make that that spiritual energy, that spiritual consciousness of the soul, shouldn't just be a little flavor of it, or a little sprinkle of of it here and there, but that we should be able to connect to it, that it should be able to be aware of it, that we should be able to be conscious about it. So this seems maybe something foreign and difficult, but at least now we open the hole to be able to know where our target is to be able to reach towards it. So what we're going to have now is one meditation, like we did last week, about this conscious awareness of the two types of souls. So I'm just going to put on the video, I'm just going to go out of the PowerPoint a moment, and play that video of the first meditation. Give me one second. I thought I had it. there, hold on. Just give me one second, got to minimize that. Still a little minimize. Just give me one second. There you go. voices speaking to us from within. One voice is our lower order self, Nefesh Bahamis. The Nefesh Bahamis urges us to live a life of pleasure, of ease. Getting what we want whenever we want it. 
The other voice is the voice of the Nefesh Elokis. That's our godly self. That's the self that seeks connectedness with people in love. Connectedness with the world and its elements, feeling fulfilled. Connectedness with Hashem. Gently close your eyes and just become aware of your inner self, your inner quiet, that place you can escape to because it's always a place where you have your own sense of self. Allow that special place to be your refuge. That place of inner sanctity, totally protected, always safe. As you step out of that space, become aware of your two inner voices. Listen to the voice of the Nefesh Bahamis. Note what it tells you. It says, you're insecure in this world. You need to shore yourself up. You need more and more and more. Otherwise you're unsafe. Build walls around you. Wealth. Create superficial pleasures because life is short. The Nefesh Bahamis is the voice of the ego. Now listen to the truer voice of the Nefesh Elokis. The voice that tells you that everything possesses truth and meaning. That your happiness and joy comes from connecting truly to people, to the world around you by connecting to the inner selves, the soulful center, the voice that tells you pleasure doesn't come from material acquisition. It comes from the smile of appreciation for having helped someone, for the small gift that you give your grandchild, for the blue sky that you wake up to. In life, choose which voice you are going to listen to. It may be 
that you don't need to have a battle within, a fight between them. You might even be able to transform the Nefesh Bahamis into an ally, giving its energy the capacity to do the right things. But always allow yourself to recognize that your true voice is the voice of the Nefesh Elokis. In so doing, your life will be replete with happiness and fulfillment. As we now know and aware of the duality that exists within us, we now can appreciate that we can open ourselves to spirituality, but even more so that we don't have to go anywhere to open spirituality. That that spirituality is right in here with us. So instead of running and looking and doing something to be able to find spirituality, all we need to do is look within ourselves. And look deeply within inside ourselves and become aware of that spiritual seeking soul that we already have the spiritual fortitude and ability to become more spiritual. But what happens? Well, what happens is, because our spiritual inside is silenced, and how is it silenced? By the materialistic and physical world around us, what we need to do in order to see the spiritual side of it we need to peel away all the materialism that's there. And the only way we can reveal the spirituality that exists within us is by subtraction. Not by adding something into our life, but by removing and peeling away the layers of materialism which are blocking and concealing the spirituality that's within us. Because we need to be able to find and dig deep within ourselves to drive away that ego, that materialistic want, desires, and continuous need and pursuit of materialism to be able to see and achieve that spirituality that's in there. And when we identify more closely with our spiritual element, we can then come within ourselves and have that spiritual experience. This deep level of peeling away the layers and secluding, so to speak, and isolating the spiritual soul was one process of meditation in Jewish meditation practice was called Hit Bodidut. Those of you that may have been familiar with somebody called Rabbi Nachman of Breslov as a teaching of Hasidism, he was his grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. The Breslov Hasidim are very big on the concept of Hit Bodidut. The word Hit Bodidut comes from the Hebrew word um, comes from the Hebrew word Badad which means lonely. And over here, the concept is that a person is secluded, is alone. They distance themselves from any type of material distraction in any shape or form. When I mentioned before, it was like the breast of Chassidim, they're known. If you ever saw the Ushpizin video, you see the guy runs into the field. Or there are a lot of characters today in Israel where they have the long payas and the big yamakas, And you see them running in the fields and running away from everything and screaming out to God. That's one that's a 
fringe of what the real thing is all about. So, what is the real thing? What is the ideal practice? You can see in text number five, this is brought by Avram ben Arambam, Abraham, the son of the Rambam, who says as follows. Hitbodedut, seclusion, is one of the most superior of all of the distinguished practices. It is a practice of the greatest saints and the mediums through which the prophets experience revelation. In this practice of seclusion, it's not a goal in its own right. That means the seclusion itself is not what they're trying to achieve. That means they are trying to transcend to be able to reach a higher level of holiness and therefore the only way they can do it is by secluding themselves and removing any type of materialistic distraction that may be. So here the purpose of being alone was to experience an inner aloneness, so to speak, not to allow anything to be on their mind. In fact, there's an interesting thing. We all know the custom that we, when we say Shema, we put our hands on our eyes. Why would we put our hands on our eyes when we say the first verse of Shema? So many want to say that's one form of Jewish meditation, so to speak, that we're, so to speak, secluding, and we don't want to have any enjoyment of the materialistic world. We'll be distracted by the materialistic world, and therefore we close our eyes, so to speak, again, putting ourselves in seclusion to be able to meditate and contemplate only on godliness. So when you are free from any type of material input or any type of material stimulation, you are then able to distance yourself internally from any type of material self-identification and focus on your spiritual calling. The idea is that if I remove myself from any distraction, material distraction, that means what causes my ego to be infatuated and saturated with type of materialism is because I see it in front of me. So if I leave that type of life, so automatically my ego will be subdued and not want and desire these type of things. The Shalah, which was a very famous Kabbalist by the name of Rabbi Levi Horowitz, who lived in the 16th century, a very famous rabbi in Prague and other very Jewish communities, Frankfurt, Maine, and so on, was known for his uh, commentator, Kabbalistic commentary on the Chumash, said as follows in text number 6. It is a recording in many of the works of the medieval rabbis that seclusion, hitbodedut, separation from everything, mundane, prishut, and devotional clinging, or dveikut, were practiced by pious Jews. This is to say that when they were alone, they would empty their minds of all worldly concerns and connect their minds with the master of all existence. The famous Kabbalist Arizal taught that his practice is far more beneficial for the soul than study and that every person should practice the seclusion meditation according to their ability either once a week, once a fortnight, or at least once a month. What Rabbi Yeshaya Levi Horowitz was saying over here is that by being alone, a person can mentally transcend every level even greater than learning. Because he says, when you learn something, you are mentally connecting to some type of substance, whatever it may be. But when you seclude yourself and you don't allow anything to enter, you are, so to speak, going to an absolute higher level than ever before, and you're opening your possibility to the level of dveikus. The word dveikus comes from the word, like in Hebrew, they say devek means glue, to connect, to bond, to cling, to a devotional connection with God. And this was the ultimate experience that somebody can get, which is to have that ultimate connection with God. And that's the ultimate realization of, and, and to feel God in everything that they do. In its purest form, this type of uh, seclusion is a very advanced meditation 
that when practiced properly had the totally power to shift the entire person's consciousness and awareness to a total spiritual level. To the extent that this was a method, as we'll soon see, that many prophets and great people who would receive divine inspiration, they would leave to a level of seclusion to be able to receive that type of level of prophecy. Just to give you an example, one of the cases which are brought as an example, Jonah. When did he receive the prophecy? Someone is to say that only once he was in the belly of the stomach of the whale. Because then he was not distracted by his own pursuit of trying to, quote-unquote, run away from God, the story of Jonah and the whale. Or many other prophets in that case as well, where their prophecy was only came to them in a case where they were not distracted by any type of materialism. And that's why a prophet in the prophets is called Elijah, not Elijah, Elisha, says when he got prophecy, he calls the terminology, when the craziness came upon me, because people who looked at a person while they were receiving prophecy looked crazy because they would totally avoid any type of materialism or seclude themselves and run away and they would do maybe some strange type of things that looked like at the time. And to be honest, this is not something that I know much about because I have no personal experience in these type of uh, seclusion levels. And the root of it, of it to divine inspirational prophecy, this is something which is not for the average person. It's a Kabbalistic mystical experience and it's a level where the soul can come to. However, I must, suggest, I must say that this is so high and this can also be dangerous. And if not used properly, this can also uh, have negative effects because it was, this was something that was taught privately from student to student. And that's why when you hear about can Kabbalah be learned to somebody which is under 40 or can, you have to know the whole entire Talmud before you study Kabbalah. When we talk about Kabbalistic practices, this is one of these Kabbalistic practices which was only able to be practiced if it was taught from teacher to student and after somebody has mastered and acquired and understood all the different chambers of Jewish knowledge, Talmudic thought, code of Jewish law, and the different Kabbalistic studies, were they able to reach this high level of seclusion. As you can see over here, text number seven, this is a quote from Rabbi Goin. Rabbi Goin was from the last of the Babylonian scholars. He succeeded, his father was Rabbi Shri Goin. He was considered the head of all Jews in exile at the time, and he wrote this following statement. He said, you may be aware that in the view of many of our great sages, there is a technique for individuals extremely advanced, remember these words, extremely advanced character to experience the mystical vision of the divine chariot, the angels in heaven surrounding God's throne as revealed as Ezekiel and others, and to gaze into the spiritual chambers of angels and the like. They would fast for designated amount of days, then place their head between their knees and whisper copious songs of praise of God with their faces towards the earth. This opened them to mystical visions and allowed them to experience roaming the heaven and exploring its eternal chambers of clarity. There are two works of the Mishnahic sages regarding these, entitled Heichalot Rapsai and Heichalot Zutri. This is very well known as they are unanimously regarded by all the sages as authentic. They insisted that God performs miracles and wonders through the saintly tzaddikim, just as he did with the prophets, and shows them awesome visions, just as he showed the prophets. So as I said, this is a mystical meditation technique, which its roots helps a person achieve prophecy, as we see Rabbi Goyen says, Kabbalistic mystical experiences, 
and practices of elevation. However, as, we, as I mentioned, this is dangerous stuff, and therefore one must be careful that you are spiritually fit, as the Mishnah cautions us. And I mentioned this Mishnah many times before, that there were four people who were able to achieve an absolute soulful experience that their souls transcended on high. But out of those four people that their souls transcended on high and they transcended mystical meditation, only one of them survived. The other three, one became a heretic, one died, and one had insanity. The only one that survived was Rabbi Akiva. You can see it in text number 8. Why Rabbi Akiva was the only one that survived? Because when he did that transcendental meditation, its purpose was that he should be able to come back down into this world. The others, their entire purpose was to be able to transcend on high, and therefore they, they so to speak, um, exploded or weren't able to tolerate it, and because of that, they weren't able to deal with it. This is especially true in modern times, where most of us, I should say, I can at least talk for myself, lack the spiritual sensitivity as they had in the time of the temple, or they had, as generations go on, the spiritual sensitivity continues to decrease, unfortunately, as we go further away from the holiness of the time of the holy temple. And for most of us, even a regular, how many people can concentrate in seclusion and not think about anything just even for a moment, how much more so for an hour or two, or to be able to go into the wilderness and to think about and totally seclude themselves. Even more importantly, how much more, how many can you just even sit on your couch and just close your eyes? How long does that last for? Not too long, right? So that in itself, we are not spiritual masters of the level of his meditation, and because of that, that practice is not one which is generally done. I did mention before, there are a fringe group of breasts of Chassidim who do try this out, and many times, for some of them it works. I'm not a, um, an expert on it, but I can tell you that, as we know, that for most people, the practitioners of the Hispanidus meditation is something which is for spiritual masters who have deep study and practice behind them. And even once you're able to manage to strip away the material-driven consciousness, you have to develop another level of soul consciousness that you, and you need the language to be able to appreciate it. So somebody can do the ropes, do the walks, and make the, and do, so to speak, the maneuvers, but if they don't have that soul consciousness, it's not going to work. Therefore, if we're not able to simply tune out materialism side of ourselves and become innately in touch with our divine, what does that lead us to? Another channel. And there's another channel that we can use that's in our toolbox to be able to create a level of meditation. And in Jewish meditation practice, there's another type of angle that we take, which this is called hit boninut, his boninus. Hit boninut comes from the root word, like you know in Hebrew, every word has a root word. And the root word of hit boninus comes from the word bina, which means understanding, contemplating. This is a cognitive spiritual meditation rooted in the concept of meditating on an idea, appreciating a study, looking into something that you've learned, and through hit bonenut, through analyzation, through self-meditation, onto a certain item, we become hyper-engaged in that item, that it becomes our consciousness and allows us to transcend, so to speak, the materialism into developing an awareness of our soul consciousness. What is this 
when we talk about understanding, is taking a concept and trying to deeper understand it in a way. He spun in this meditation, one of the things of it is that it can be practiced independently of the hispodidus. You don't need seclusion in order to have the contemplative. It's not necessarily, in many times it was used first as seclusion and then they would meditate on something, but the actual hitbonut itself does not need seclusion because what's happening is you're secluding your mind to focus on to something of individuality. Hitbodidus was something that opened the door. That means you had to seclude yourself and then hitbonut meant you had to contemplate on the positive to step inside. By skipping the first step of secluding yourself, but only hit bonenut, contemplating, we are, so to speak, getting through the door without using the key. And as we learned earlier, our souls are spiritual and they want to connect to divine. We just need to give our souls the tools, the walk, the path, the map, the directions for us to get connecting. So when we understand the perspective of where the soul is coming from, what the soul wants to achieve, we then can see that we can then engage our soul into a level of hispaninus, where that awareness can take it from the level of surfaceness and dig deeper and to be able to get and reach that level of hitboninus. How does one do it, practically speaking? The first step of hitboninus is usually that a person studies a spiritual wisdom, a spiritual wisdom which is based on a Kabbalistic or Hasidic text, they then take that text and to better understand, which helps them better understand the universe from the, pers- the world, from the perspective of above, meaning that there are many ways how we can look at the world. When I look at the world from my perspective, I'm looking at it from a materialistic perspective. But when I look at it from the soul's perspective, I then can see within the world a soul type of atmosphere. So by studying something which is going to give me the GPS of the soul, which is a Kabbalistic text or a Hasidic text, and helps me describe and understand what the soul is all about, I then get a purview of the soul's view of the world. Spiritual awareness is against our level of consciousness because we're materialistic people. So therefore, these ideas need us to take some contemplation, some thought process, and deliberate cognitive meditation, meaning that we take time to deliberately focus, zero in on the idea studied and learned. Just to give you a little bit of, you know, this was something that was a very well-practiced concept by Hasidim. You were able to walk into a synagogue in years of old and find Hasidim meditating for hours before prayer, as we're soon going to see what will take one such sample. There were Hasidim that would wake up. I know my, gra- I ne- my grandfather that I never met, but I was told by people that met him. He passed away before my time. And he would wake up. My mother told me even as a child, she remember every Shabbos morning, he would wake up 7 o'clock in the morning and pray from 7 o'clock until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Stay in prayer in one place and pray. People would listen. He would sing songs while he would pray. He would, in contemplative and always under his talus, he knew nothing around him in the world. The building could have fell down, you wouldn't have known. And only after 2, 3 o'clock, he would go home and make Kiddush and eat. That's what he would do. And this was every Shabbos. He worked during the week. So on Shabbos, even when he worked during the week, they knew that he was a shochet. He was a ritual slaughterer. They knew that when he davened mincha, everybody else took 10 minutes. He needed a half hour. He was a person that, and he, when he died, it was an interesting thing. He died in the middle of prayer as well. 
He was actually praying in 770 and, and, he, and he passed away. He had a heart attack and he laid down and he died. That's while he was in the middle of praying with his talus. So he was a person that prayer who took up a very big focus in his life besides being a Torah scholar, but he was able to take these teachings that he learned about. So I once asked, what did he think about? And it was learning Hasidism, what he studied all week. He first would study for an hour or two a Hasidic text, and then spend the time while prayer understanding and appreciating what that Hasidic text from the soul's purview. Now, this is a very great level. What I'm saying, why I'm bringing the story is because this is not talking about people that did this hundreds of years ago. This is just 40, 50 years ago. And there are still people today that do it. The Bittl Rebbe, just to give you a little example, I'm just going a little bit of a side note just to give you some anecdotes to be able to help fill in the blanks here. The second Chabad Rebbe wrote extensively on this concept of his boninut, of contemplation. He wrote a whole pamphlet called Kuntersei's Beninus, a way and a method of Jewish meditation through contemplation. And the Mittler Rebbe himself was a person who when he would pray for hours, but you would see no reaction on the outside. They say that you would be able to see on his strimal. I don't know if you know what a strimal is. Those, uh, it's not today what kind. It's basically a fur lining around the yarmulke on the inside, you're able to see sweat from his yarmulke. That's how deeply inside he was meditating, reaching to how, how much work he was going through. That means it was an internal work that he was doing of this meditation. It wasn't an easy process. And here is, a, a, here is from a letter from the previous Rebbe who gives an example of what it means, this contemplative meditation. A central foundation of the study of mysticism is to repeatedly spend considerable time in deep contemplation on the subject matter being studied. This is the practice that is referred to as isponinus, which means to firmly visualize the concept and to analyze it deeply. He continues, Take it to heart. You shall take it to heart, the Torah tells us. This is a positive commandment to know God. We are enjoined to investigate and develop an appreciation of God's unity. Not to rely solely on received tradition, however, since the spiritual understanding of the divine is an abstract and not easily understood, the verse emphasizes that we must take to heart. The Hebrew term for take it in the verse literally means return it, indicating we must repeatedly contemplate the concept until it settles in our mind. The term take it to heart always refers to a matter and requires profound concentration and extra focus thinking. Meditating is... That means there are spiritual concepts to take root. When we say words in prayer, just to give you a little example, there was a chassid. He wasn't a brilliant person. But when he would say the words of prayer, he would say, what words am I saying? How does this word mean to me? What does the word actually mean to me? And it said, this chassid would, would daven with the crease on the page. That every single time where he had a chance, he would fold his page and stop for a moment and say, what am I saying? What do these words mean to me? How does it connect to me? That means take to heart the words that you're saying, breaking it down, analyzing it, and explore the applications and the manifestations of the words we say, the things we learn, and the world around us, and how it, fix, uh, how it makes an effect on us. What does the Sit Boninus do for us? It takes a deep concentration and applies the thought that takes limited ideas, so to speak, and gives us an entire purview an entire new outlook on a subject. It allows a mystical idea to all of a sudden assimilate in our minds and become part of our way of thinking. We all of a sudden are not only thinking about materialism, we now can be in touch in our spiritual consciousness and our soul conscious as well. 
It creates a dialogue between the spiritual and the physical, between the spiritual consciousness of our mind and the physical, as we can see in text number 11a. Hitbonanut is an internal dialogue with an idea. Once we have studied something, well, in all its fine details, explanations and commentaries, until we have developed thorough understanding of it, the practice of Hitbonanut meditation is then to mentally analyze the idea to verify whether our understanding is true and accurate of all its details, through diligent meditation we develop a strong visualization of the soul, its concept, which are emanating from the core itself. Continues in text in 11b, this is from a woman, her name was Fruma Rosenberg Gottlieb, who wrote a book on mindfulness and Jewish meditation. The Hasidic practice of Hidbonanut meditation involves actively contemplating a spiritual concept until it expands our creative intelligence, deepens our awareness, and becomes an inedible, indelible part of our consciousness. What this illustrates is that when a person has this meditative level of Hidbonanut, it doesn't just take me in a bliss, but it sharpens our understanding and gives us an emotional relationship with what we're doing. Like I said before in the words of prayer, when we visualize a subject and I engage in it, I become all of a sudden deeply involved in it. I'm moved by it. Think about it for a moment. When you have this level, any spiritual idea, for it to become visible and become conscious, God puts in front of us all these different types of things. And we sometimes, or anything in your house, think about it. This guy once in real estate told me this interesting thing. It's like a seemingly uh, nonsense type of idea for somebody that wants to invest in real estate, but it gives you a way how the brain thinks. He tells me he only invests in commercial real estate. Ask him why. He says, when do people spend most of their time? At home, after hours. When do people realize what the problems are in their house? After hours. I don't want to be bothered after hours. When do people realize the problems that are where they are in work is when they're working. So in commercial real estate, I'll only get calls during business hours. If I buy residential real estate, I'm going to get all my calls after hours. When do we all of a sudden get involved in something? When we sit there and we look at it, we look at it, we look at it, and all of a sudden say, wow, that was sitting there. You never noticed it all along. Hidbonanut allows us to contemplate through our soul and recognize things, our closeness that we have with God, that we never imagined. Why? Because it was so obscured. I was so busy running all over the place. I never had a moment to think about my God. I never think about what I have, my relationship, what's really within me, what's my true consciousness. Why? Because I'm busy thinking about material pursuits. My material consciousness was one that was overcoming my spiritual. So if I take a moment and I sit back and I say one minute, let me meditate for a moment. Let me think about my soul. What am I doing? An honest contemplation, like we look into text number 12, through honest contemplation, we deep fo- with deep focus, a person's soul develops an authentic closeness and attachment to God commensurate to the spiritual standing. Through this, one fulfills the mitzvah to love God. You know, people have a question. How can God tell you to love God? How can I love... Yeah, yeah. it's like telling somebody to love chocolate. What if I don't like chocolate ice cream? I don't like vanilla. I can't force you to love something. But what does the the Hasidic masters tell us? You inherently love God. The problem why you don't know that you love God is because you never thought about God. 
And if you think about God, then you'll love God. Hidbarunu tells us, contemplate, meditate about God, and you'll come to love God. So what we're going to try to do today is we're going to try to take this practice. We'll take one piece of what the Hasidic masters wrote, we're going to study it, analyze it, and learn this idea together. And once we learn this idea together, we're going to take a moment to try to think about the idea and see how our perspective changes by meditating on the idea of what the Hasidic masters wrote. The passage that we're going to study is from a discourse delivered by the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dov Ber Shnerson. Rabbi Shalom Dov Ber wrote extensively thousands, literally thousands of pages on Hasidic text explaining the spiritual relationship that one has with God. And the theme of his talk today is on the inner dimension of teshuva, which means repairing our relationship with God. The spiritual-based meditation flows from the ideas that we were talking about until now in this lesson, and this is going to try to take what we've learned and bring it into practice. So text number 13, let's learn for a moment what the Hasidic master says. Everything that exists is comprised, you guys have it? Page 54. I'm sorry you don't have a book there, we'll get. Everything that exists is comprised of a physical form and a spiritual. Divine energy that creates and animates the entity's physical existence. This is clearly demonstrable in animals and humans. They have animating spirit. If the spirit were to leave the body, the body would no longer be classified as alive. And the body would begin to decompose and turn to dust. That is because the very existence of the body hinges upon the spiritual energy that animates it. The same is true in vegetation. It also possesses an animating spirit. Even inanimate objects possess some sort of energizing spirit that keeps them in existence and prevents their disappearance. The first thing he says is that everything has a soul no matter what it is, whether the human being, whether the human being, whether it's vegetation, whether animalistic souls, whatever it may be, everything has a soul that keeps it going. Based on this awareness, spirituality, and everything living in this world, <clears throat> spirituality is referred to as good in life because it is a living force that remains alive and in existence forever. Whereas physical matter is referred to as negative and death because it decomposes and ceases to exist without a spirit within it. And it has no means of existing independently. From my flesh I can perceive God, Job said, meaning that the human experience informs our understanding of God. We intuitively sense that we have a life force that provides us with life and that it is our primary identity and that we are sold to leave our body, the body would be left like an inanimate rock and eventually decompose and disappear. The same is true with all that exists. The entire cosmos and all that it contains exists due to the divine spirit that give existence to everything. That divine light and force is the entire life and sustaining power of all that exists. If it departs, all existence will revert to absolute nothingness. If we meditate on this idea, 
we will realize that the material existence of each entity is entirely dependent on the spiritual force within it, and that the physicality is nullified before the presence of the divine light, and it's the source of existence. The realization will inspire a powerful desire, love, and yearning for the divine. We will no longer desire the wish that exists only superficially, and which in fact decomposing and disappearing, all will desire to attach the divinity that is true life and the mainstay of existence. So this was a very deep teaching and attempts to reframe our entire life, our entire view of the world, and even more than that. And it proposes that spirituality is all over the place, in everything we do and in everything we say. And even if somebody was just to learn and look at this just peripherally, you might say, well, sounds pretty compelling. Or maybe some will say, maybe irrelevant. How do I apply this? How is this going to shift our thinking? I just read it. What does this mean to me? But what we need to do is take a moment and we're going to look deeply into what the Rebbe Rashab was saying and have that, as I said, it requires meditative contemplation and meditation to be able to break it into pieces and see how this can actually affect and change our conscious awareness of how we view things and see things. And by breaking it down into smaller parts, we'll be able to analyze, chew it over, and be able to maybe shift our perspective for a moment and allow the teaching to sink in. And the more we meditate on it, whether now or later, or at a different time, you will see it will help us to be more aware and spiritually connected to what we can do. So let's spend just a few moments in breaking down the pieces of here of what was going on here. If you look at what the fifth Chabad Rebbe was saying over here, he was basically saying three primary ideas. What are the three primary ideas he's sharing with us? Number one, everything has a soul. Number two, the spiritual soul is everything and is the true source of life. And number three, because spirituality is the true source of life, What's the value of materialism? Spirituality is the true value of everything. Seems logical. A follows B, and therefore A and B follow C. A, everything has a soul. The soul is the source of the life of everything. Therefore, what purpose is anything else but the soul? Right? Seems logical. But what does this mean? Let's take it a little deeper. Now let's understand it, what's happening here. The first thing, the first step was, Everything has a divine spirit within it. What does this mean, everything has a divine spirit within it? We started the first beginning of the class saying that the humans were created different than the animals and vegetation. That everything else, animals and vegetation, were created with one saying, while humans, God took two parts because we have two consciousnesses. But that does not mean that they don't have a soul. Everything that exists in this world have a soul. Humans and animals have a soul. The only difference is that the humans have the ability to be cognizant and tap into their soul while animals and the vegetation don't. So when we look at the difference over here, we see when we talk about everything having a soul, all created beings, the, despite their apparent physical way they look, are all predicted on the fact that they have a soul within it. Take a step back. Anything that we have, any experience that you talk about, has within it a body and a soul. For example, you can see in uh, exercise 2.4, 
everything that you do has some type of soul. Identify the soul. You're having a dinner with a spouse or a close friend. What's the body? What's the soul? The food is the body. The event, the fact that you're having dinner together, the conversation or the conversation can be the body too, but the emotions that come from it would be the soul. You're disciplining a child. The tactic you may use to discipline the child may be the body, but the fact that the child is now being educated would be the soul. Exercising in the gym, where do you see the soul in that? What's the soul of it? The fact that you're becoming healthier. What's the body of it? The actual work that you're doing. Shaking a hand on a deal. Why do you need to shake the hand? Is shaking the hand making the deal? Not at all. If a person shakes his hand but there's no contract and there's no talking beforehand, there's no deal. It's the emotions, it's the things that behind it, what you don't see is what the soul over here. So while these examples are only metaphors of the spiritual teachings, the soul that we talk about is the divine spiritual energy that exists within every conscious being that's in this world. Everything, this table has a soul. In the same way we have a soul. Everything has a soul. You see the body. Every knowledge, the words that you say are the body. The rationale, the thought, the thinking behind it is the soul. We appreciate this even more. If we look at a piece of art, you look at a picture. A person can just look at the picture and say, well, what's here? What's the big deal? I see paint. I see different strokes. I see a brush. I see maybe different colors. If the guy was an unbelievable painting, I can start telling you maybe what the person looks like. But is that what the painting is? The painting is giving over a picture. It's giving over a story. There's an emotion behind it. If there was the artist was here, he'd be able to tell you who all the people symbolize, what they are, why they're standing this way, why this one's standing to the side and this one's riding to the left. I remember once seeing a picture. A guy made a canvas. It was all blue. And on top of the canvas that was blue, there was this black dot. <laughs> and the picture was selling for a few thousand dollars. And I looked at it and I said, look, so my, my, look, my, maybe my kid made it. She brought it home from school. I don't know what it was. But the artist was standing there and he had a whole explanation. It's the sky and there's the black dot. It's the comet that's coming down. And while he was thinking, well, he had all emotion behind it. I looked at it only from a materialistic realm. He had a deep soul connection with the picture. The same thing is also I can look at the world. I can look at the world and see everything that exists in the world, just a bunch of strokes, paint, blotches or mistakes, whichever way you want to look at it. If you're a more positive person, you say, well, it's a lot of nice things there. And if you're a cynical person, you say it's a lot of issues or mistakes that uh, somebody just happenstance happened in this world. But if I look a little deeper and I see the soul, the emotion, the ideas that are here, the lines and the shape. This is not just a physical idea. The world is God's canvas. The matter and the lines are His work. And the spiritual reality that's behind it is the theme of it. So the first step Rabbi Shalom Dovber is telling us is to see that every single thing in this world, even the smallest blade of grass, has a soul. Has a purpose of being. Has an emotion. Take that just with, with that thought alone. If I will even just take that thought alone. Just that thought alone for a moment. Imagine people have that. How do you treat people differently? How you treat animals differently? How you say something is differently? Because I don't just see it just for the physical finite being that's there. There's an energy behind it. 
There's a soul. There's something that's making up this person. But now I go a step deeper. Step deeper is that the spiritual soul of everything is its true source of life. Think about it. If the soul is the experience that gives the person, it's like the handshake without the deal. What's the handshake worth? It's like the canvas without a story behind it. What's it? It's nothing. It's lifeless. Look at the body. The body without a soul. What is it? Absolutely nothing. A body without a soul is nothing worth. Has no life to it. So if we think about any metaphor that you've used, whatever it may be, the soul isn't just another part of the body. The soul is integral for the body to exist. The soul is not just another part like the lungs, the heart, the brain. Yes, they are all integral, and if you don't have lungs, you're not going to live. But if you have a soul, you also don't come into existence. Nothing exists. The soul is what gives the body's life. The human soul animates us, give us gives us the energy. The same is true with all existence. The same is true with our physical sense and our spiritual sense. I can't just have a physical life. And then we see the proof in the pudding that people that are only materialistic, it dries up after a while. How many more boats can you have? How many more? As they used to say in Yiddish, the richest person only wears one pair of pants. Doesn't make a difference. All these physical pursuits, if there's no soul behind it, there's no life. There's no energy. Everything we experience in life, regard any, whether it's a relationship or even drinking a cup of tea, if I don't have the feeling behind it, it's nothing. It needs, it's the source of all life. And because of that, I come to number C, which is, since the spiritual content of everything is its core identity, then what should I value? What should I value? The final piece of the puzzle is, if the main essence of myself is my soul, what should I be taking care of? My soul. If my soul is what gives my vitality, if my soul is what gives me energy, if my emotions is what is the core of every deal, what do you focus more on when you make a deal? The nuances of the deal or the handshake, how it's going to be stronger, it's going to be weak. The handshake, you can have a deal without a handshake. But you can't have a handshake without a deal. You can't have a deal. The handshake is only what solidifies it, brings it into the physical. But if you don't have the emotion behind it, what's it worth? Sometimes the handshake is the emotion. Sometimes it, it's the handshake is not the emotion, brings out the emotion. Yes, but sometimes but if, added emphasis or added enthusiasm that you display, I'll just think it's the handshake. Very good. It does push it over That's body. why what is the added emphasis when we show that we love God, what do we do? We do a mitzvah with physical. Because that is the emphasis that brings out the physical. It brings out the spiritual. Exactly the point. That means there's the spiritual energy that's there, and then God says, put on tefillin, and use those leather straps, because I need you to take the material and make it part of that emotional. Exactly like the handshake is what's going to bring out this, exactly the point. So if we think back, you can be talking to somebody, communicating to somebody, and you can be talking to a nose, an ear, and eyes, but if there's no emotion there, you're not talking to anybody. If there's no soul there, you're not talking to anybody. And as we apply this in large, we can get to appreciate in every single thing, we have to value and cherish the life force behind it, not just the physical and the authentic reality. 
is the spiritual meaning within every object that I experience. If I only look at things for its facade, for its physical, for its materialism, I've got nothing. I don't have a relationship. I am known to treat people properly. Take it in every facet of life. If I only look at things for their finite, materialistic, selfish existence, you've got nothing. Because what is the value of anything is what's behind the conversation to the person you're talking to, the emotion that you're creating, the person that you realize, the soul, the emotion, the character that's there, the spiritual consciousness that's there. With this we can understand what the verse tells, Moses tells the Jewish people. Moses tells the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy right before his passing. He calls on them and he says as follows, text number 14, page 57. This day I call upon you, heaven and earth, as witnesses that I have warned you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. You shall choose life so that you and your offsprings will live. Do you have to tell somebody that they have to choose life? Did Moses have to warn the Jewish people? They were very intelligent people. They studied the Torah. And he has to tell them, choose life? Don't they know they should choose life? But if understanding what we just spoke about before, what Moses was telling them, life is spirituality. Death is physicality. Why? Because life, spirituality, is something that energizes, that keeps the thing going. Without the life, without the soul, what is physicality? An empty vessel, nothing will go in the ground. It's nothing worth, it's a future drop. So now the choice becomes more relevant and more challenging. Because in front of my eyes I am tempted by the materialism. By in front of my eyes I'm tempted by the facade, by the beautiful physique, by the beautiful ideas that are glamouring and shining. But if I look a little deeper, I see that what are these things? They're just death. They're just emptiness. It's like a body without a soul. And therefore Moses reminds the Jewish people and encourages them and he says to choose the ultimate life. Look at things for their deeper divine experience that are in them, not for their finite limited level of underappreciation. And therefore he comes up and he comes along and he tells them, fellas, Choose when you're going to come into the land of Israel. You're going to be the going on. The divine purpose is to see the utmost divine purpose and reason and to see the spirituality and everything. This meditation opens us up automatically to the possibilities of seeing the divine in everything that God gave us. It shifts our intention in the moments of life. When we all of a sudden want to become upset because of something materialistically that's bothering us. And then we look a little further and say, one second, there's some divine energy there that I'm missing. Or am I having it? What am I getting upset about? Where is it happening? What am I really focusing on? Life or death? Something that's going to go into the ground and never be this and be the same way as if it was before? Or something that's constantly evolving, changing, connecting, emotionally charging? And that's the spiritual ultimate life force that's within everything. Text number 15, in the words of the uh, fifth Chabad Rebbe. The Torah instructs us in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God, because He is your life. When, he loves our, when we love ourselves, it is a state of life that our soul provides, that we love. Because we sense that it is the core self. By the same token, we should love God, where He is here, the source of all life existence. 
When we meditate on the reality that divinity is the life, of all life we will desire and to love God. Consequently, in all our interactions with the externality of the universe, such as eating and drinking, conducting business and so on, our focus will shift from material or corporal elements to embrace the divinity within. If we think about the things that upset us most or give us the most stress, what are they? They're physical, they're materialistic, because they lack the divine energy that's in it. But if we focus, and even when we eat, we drink, we do business, and we look at the divine energy that's in it, the spiritual behind it, automatically it gives us a sense of relaxation because that doesn't change, because that's within us. It's a question of revealing it. Here's the next meditation video that I would like to exercise that we'll do. Spirituality means to sense viscerally how meaningful every single moment an item of life is, which means to enter into a relationship soul to soul, and we can do so with everything that we find in our daily activities. So gently close your eyes and just become aware of a source of light in your head, pleasant, warm, spreading throughout your headspace, enlightening, animating, and flowing down into your lower body, feeling comfortable, to have locomotion, movement, 
growth, inclination towards the sun. It has both nefesh and ruach. The animal has an even more advanced soul system. It has the nefesh to maintain its physical state, ruach providing it with animation, movement, but also neshama, which provides it with rudimentary communication capacity. And then there's a human being who possesses all three plus the level of soul known as Chaya. The level of soul that provides consciousness, awareness of the flow of time, present, past and future, hopes, aspirations, values, beliefs. We encounter all four levels in life. Allow that encounter to be soul to soul, recognizing that everything possesses value, godliness, purpose, and only by relating spiritually to the essence of that soul do we connect meaningfully, live a deep and meaningful life. So, we started this class with the assumption that spirituality is something distant, intangible, because we're so inclined to materialism. And we have discovered over the past hour that how to appreciate spirituality and make it a reality in our lives. So if we look back at those questions that we asked in the beginning of our class, how would you define spirituality? How might spirituality be experienced? So, spirituality isn't somewhere or some specific experience. Spirituality is something that is in the inner soul. It's everything. It's everywhere. And once we meditate and consciously aware of it, we have the ability to become spiritually experienced. And by the shift of perception that doesn't happen instantly, even after we learned and even after we meditated on the different concepts, the chances are that we can be walking in, out of here and not necessarily always thinking about it and having that physical sensation, but the more we at least know and perceive and know that these concepts exist, the better we are, the, more, the closer we are to having that shift. So therefore, where do we go from here? The practice for this week, your homework is, for the spiritual meditation to have a tangible effect in your life, we need to open up your depth of living, what it provides, we need to take some time to meditate regularly. Take a few moments. On the next few pages, you will see in the appendix as well, different types of studies that you can think about, study, and learn throughout the week. Take a specific spiritual idea, think about it in your own words, see how you would apply it, and take for a few minutes and see how, question your understanding, reevaluate, try to connect with those ideas and seeing how that can make a difference in your life and how relevant it can be. It's not easy to focus on something even for a few minutes, but when you take a short synopsis of an idea and add with some time, you will have a greater aptitude to 
focus and able to have longer periods of time where you're able to create ideas of your own and to be able to expand these things based on your studies and whatever you learn to be able to take it and apply it and see the divine consciousness that's in it. Here's a quick review of what we learned today. Lesson two, mind yourself. Reflecting inward to find the divine. One, we are comprised of a body and soul, each of which has a unique character and drive. Two, the body is driven by material aim, and the soul by spirituality. We all possess an innate spiritual drive within us that we can come to feel and experience. Three, one way to perceive the spiritual drive of the soul is by distancing ourselves from the immediate distractions of materialism. <laughs> this is the root of hypotentive meditation. Four, the most effective way to develop our spiritual calling is by learning about and contemplating the spiritual ideas. This meditation practice is known as Hitvonimut. Five, just as we have a soul that gives us life and our true identity, the world has a soul that sustains it and is its most authentic identity. Six, we choose life by focusing on the spiritual content of every experience and valuing the divine potential within it. Next week is called Mastermind, the Benefits of Divine Closeness. We always think of God as something distant, spiritual, static, and we're going to see how God's presence is dynamically involved in everything we do in life, and when we meditate on that, how much of a calm effect and adding joy and resilience and purpose in our life it will bring. Same time, same place, next week. Any questions? I have a question. Sure. So at what point does the soul become... Gender, 